scripture reading this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. There's only 10 verses in chapter 1 and we'll take all 10. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, reading from the English Standard Version. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is God's word. Now we'll be in this letter through October. That's three months, 12 Sundays, 12 sermons. And these 10 verses that I just read, chapter 1 here, we're going to take over uh, two Sundays. So we'll make a pass through it this Sunday and emphasize certain things. And we'll come back next Sunday, same passage, make another pass, emphasize more things in it. This is the first letter Paul wrote to a church. Now that is debated which one is the first. I follow a uh, New Testament chronology that puts 1 Thessalonians as the first letter, not just the first of two letters he wrote to this particular church in the ancient Greek city of Thessalonica. It's known as Thessaloniki today. But the first letter he wrote any church, which means what you've opened up to this morning is the oldest Christian correspondence that we have on record. It's written to the church of the Thessalonians, that phrase in verse 1, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know some things, thankfully, about God the Father. We know some things about the Lord Jesus Christ. But what about Thessalonica, the ancient city? The context does matter. I won't spend a lot of time with this. But you should know that as all cities do, it had a certain culture. And for our purposes, we need to understand a few things about that culture. Namely, their culture didn't know what to do with Christians. The movement of Christ was new. And in that city, they didn't know what to do with Christians except oppose us. And why is that? Because Christians worshiped God exclusively through Jesus and none other. That's it. That's why there was such opposition. We're still this way. But that was a problem for ancient Greeks, ancient Jews as well, a violent problem even. If you want some background to this later on, sometimes this week, read Acts chapter 17 and you'll read about Paul's visit to Thessalonica, which he'll reference throughout this letter as a visit cut short, 
We were torn away from you, he'll say at the end of chapter 2. We wanted to stay longer. We send Timothy back to you. All of that. It was violent, the opposition. It was instigated by uh, a Jewish contingency in the city that didn't like the Christians, and the Greeks were happy to chime in. That was Thessalonica. They opposed Christians because Christians worshipped Jesus as God exclusively. Look at it again in verse 9, where he says, You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That turning to God from idols, that's not just a spiritual statement, that's a political statement. It is a statement with widespread civic and social implications in their day as well as ours. The civic authorities of the city of Thessalonica, the ancient city, considered Christians disruptors of the peace because Christians, whatever else good we did for people, if we didn't worship Caesar, the emperor, as God, and the coins even said he was God, we didn't do that, and so that was a problem. We didn't worship uh, Roma, a goddess that was uh, favored among the Thessalonians, nor did we worship uh, any of the favored gods and goddesses from Mount Olympus, which was just down the, the road. Uh, Christians were thought to be undermining the social stability that came from everyone participating in the same cults and the same temple rites including Jews in Thessalonica, though they went to synagogue and they were called by Moses to give exclusive worship to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Historians tell us that many Jews in that time would expediently participate in the paganism in order to blend in. But the Christians, who were ethnically Jews and Gentiles both, Jews and Greeks both, ethnically, they, they would not participate in the alternative worships around them and so they were civically and socially ostracized, if not persecuted as a result. That's a little bit of the context of ancient Thessalonica. Idolatry, mentioned there in verse 9 again. We'll get to verse 9 later. Idolatry was a huge part of the social fabric of old Greek cities, as well as the economy. Now, we think of idolatry, and we think of it exclusively in ancient terms a lot of times. We think of, you know, idols, some... 20-foot statue of a man's frame with a goat's head and, and fire behind the eyes, you know. Uh, don't think of idolatry as an ancient reality only. It's a modern reality too. I'll, I'll get on to this later. But civic authorities felt they really had every reason to suspicion exclusive allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only did you have the civic social problem, political problem, but you also had those in the church losing family and friends who felt betrayed when their loved ones became Christians because they no longer did the things that they'd always done. So that still happens too. I look around the room and know most of you, and I know some of you have a story you could tell of losing family closeness, losing friendships when you met Jesus. And those people who'd been close to you, they didn't like it. Following Jesus undoes blood and soil loyalties. Thessalonica was a blood and soil place. What does that remind you of? Remember three, year, three years ago this weekend, there was the Unite the Right rally in uh, Charlottesville. Wretched event, certainly protected by, you know, First Amendment, but, but from a Christian interpretation, completely wretched. You had torch-wielding neo-Nazis and 
white nationalists chanting slogans like blood and soil and Jews will not replace us. And you understand that Christians actually faced much the same in Old Thessalonica from Jews and Gentiles both. The Old Thessalonian culture didn't know what to do with Christians except oppose them. It was like it was Christians will not replace us. It was all about blood and soil. There wasn't freedom of religion in that old context as we're accustomed to thinking of belief and practice within a First Amendment context here. It was more of an enforced pluralism. And pluralism, I know that sounds like a, a big word, but all pluralism means is you were free to worship whomever and whatever you wanted to as long as you also worshiped the emperor. That's pluralism, the plurality of gods. You were free to worship whoever and whatever you wanted to as long as you also paid homage to Roma the goddess favored in Thessalonica, as I mentioned, and all those favored gods and goddesses who resided almost 60 miles to the southwest on Mount Olympus, visible from Thessaloniki. You can Google it and, and see pictures of it today. But you can't see God the Father, nor can you see the Lord Jesus Christ, at least not now. If you'd lived at a certain time and place in the first century, you would have. So you don't go to temple a temple, a pagan altar to see your 20-foot, you know, God with a goat's head and fire coming out of his eyes. No, our God is seen in his people. He's seen in and through his living church, and that gets to our credibility. Why are we looking at 1 Thessalonians? I've named this series Credible the first Thessalonians way because the credibility of the church, the credibility of our witness as the people of God, it's always a relevant topic. It's not more so now than it's ever been, though the credibility of American evangelical Christians has taken hits and is very threadbare in places. We don't have the moral credibility we once did. In fact, we're now thought to contribute to society's ills rather than working to heal them. And that's not altogether fair, no. But in assessment from a doing justly, loving mercy consideration, we're, we're, we're not in our best days. We're not at full strength. We need renewal. Now, saying that, it's not like you look back in the New Testament and you go, well, we need to get back to the flawless church that was back there. Well, the new church that's back there wasn't a flawless church. You've never known a flawless church. There's no flawless church on any street in this city or anywhere else in this country or this world. There's great churches and there's churches that do some things better than others. And, and we're all thankful for that and hopeful. Uh, but there's never been a perfect church. Not in the pages of the New Testament. There's not been a perfect church uh, in church history. There will be a perfect church when Jesus returns and glorifies his bride that is the church. But the credibility of our witness as the people of God, is always a relevant topic. Back when I was a teenager, I'm a kid of the 80s, Gen X. I still listen to 80s on 8, you know, on uh, satellite radio. My kids know all the 80s songs. Uh, back in that time, it was popular to invoke what became a cliche. This was on T-shirts and bumper stickers and those little uh, precious moment <laughs> figurines. Um, which I think my sister had a few, if I remember rightly. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. 
You ever heard that one? Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. And there's a sense in which that's true. Christians aren't perfect, but we do have to be credible. The church has never been perfect, no. But when you look at this one, this one on, I don't know, in my Bible, it's five pages of 1 Thessalonians. That's what it covers on the page matter in my Bible. This little bitty piece of the New Testament. When you look at this church, you do find their way, what I'm calling the 1 Thessalonians way, is a way of credible faith, credible hope, credible love. These three realities listed in verse 3. See it there in verse 3? You get the cardinal virtues of Christian faith, Christian hope, Christian love. And Paul's going to come back to each of these listed in verse 3 here throughout the letter. This letter is about faith, hope, and love as it was demonstrated in this community of believers and rang out from them, as he says in verse 8, all through their province and beyond. And a credible faith, hope, and love is important because credible faith, hope, and love makes or breaks our witness. We can't shrug that off. If you want to summarize verse 3, let's just pick up with the chapter there. Verse 3, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness, some translations endurance, of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ because of the difficulties in that culture as I was saying. If you want to summarize verse 3 in a word, he's telling them you're credible. You're credible, not incredible, not with an I-N tagged on uh, prefixing. It's not incredible. They had flaws, as we all do, and we'll see theirs in this letter. We'll get to it. And, and besides, Paul will say in chapter 2, he and his companions, Silas and Timothy, they, they weren't given to flattering anyone anyway. So it's, it's not incredible. That's not our call in Christ. The reason we're chosen by him, that's emphasized in verse 4. We know, brothers loved by God, verse 4, that he has chosen you. He's not chosen us to be incredible super Christians. But neither are we to discredit ourselves as Jesus' people living for now in light of his coming, living among people in our city, our neighbors, many of whom don't know him, many of whom don't love him. And so um, I want to establish a, something of a continuum this morning. And the poles of that continuum is incredibleness and discreditedness, while credibility is in the center. How to have credible faith, credible hope, credible love that translates into people seeing that we are people who know Jesus. That's what we open First Thessalonians to find out. And so with these 10 verses in front of us today and next Sunday, first pass this Sunday, second pass next Sunday, I think a continuum is a good way to um, gather in what's here before us in this chapter. So I want you to think of, of chapter one, put chapter one on a horizontal line. You know what a continuum is. It starts with things in the center, and then the line moves out in opposite directions, uh, and, and there's ends, extremes of, of what's in the, con, in the center of the continuum. I think that's a good way to gather in what's here before us. Chapter one is our credibility continuum. 
Everything in a continuum starts in the center. What's in the center of our credibility continuum? Well, look at the text. Just let your eye fall down the page. We've already been establishing verse 3. Work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. Go down to verse 6. Imitators. You've become imitators of us and of the Lord. And you received the word in much affliction, joy of the Holy Spirit. You became an example. Verse 7. The word of the Lord sounds out from you, rings out from you. Verse 8. You've turned from idols to serve the living and true God, verse 9, and to wait for his son from heaven, which gets at their hope and their longing. So there's a lot of good stuff in the center here, characteristic. We'll use credible faith, hope, and love as a summary. We'll just put what's in verse 3 in the center rather than trying to uh, put all of it, but, but all of it's there. All of this is in the center at the core. And if we draw a line out from there, so in the center of credible Christianity is credible faith, credible hope, credible love. And if you draw from that center point your line in both directions, at one extreme, you've got incredibleness. And at the other extreme, you've got discreditedness. Farthest right, farthest left from center. A continuum. Let me give you a point of comparison on this because some of you will be familiar with this. If you've taken my little class, I teach a little elective. I've done this on a retreat and elective in the church uh, a couple different times. In fact, COVID back in March interrupted one that I was doing where I uh, teach what is evangelicalism. You know, the E word. <laughs> We're called evangelical Christians, first evangelical church. So what is an evangelical? Uh, how would you describe an evangelical? How would you define what goes in the center? What's core to evangelical identity? And then from that, I put it on a continuum. So when I'm teaching, what is an evangelical? What does evangelical mean? In the center, I'll, I'll put a, a whiteboard. I'll put a, a line across the whiteboard. And in the center, I'll put four key characteristics of evangelicalism, four core components. I'm not going to get into them. I'm just giving you this as a, as a parallel picture. And then we move the line, and in the far, let's see, your right is going to be this way. This is going to be really complex for me. Far right is fundamentalism. Far left is progressivism. So it's not that evangelicals inhabit some sort of middle ground. It's that there are four core components of who an evangelical is, our identity, our purpose, our meaning. And then on the continuum, you can plot some left and right elbow room where you're still an evangelical, but you might trend a little left in this area and you might trend a little right in this area, but you're still an evangelical because you haven't sacrificed anything in the core. But by the time you get out to the ends, fundamentalism and progressivism, you're no longer an evangelical. A fundamentalist is not an evangelical. It's someone who's gone too far right. A progressive is someone who's not an evangelical. They've gone too far left. Now that's a little bit overly simplistic and there's a lot of nuance in that and I take the class next time it's offered if you're interested to, to see how that uh, goes. But I want to put this passage, these 10 verses on a similar line and establish that at the center of credible Christianity is a certain kind of faith, hope, and love in demonstration. And then what the extremes are is thinking that you've got to be incredible or discrediting your faith, your hope, and your love, a continuum. Those are the poles, and that's what's in the center. In the center, credible faith, hope, and love, to summarize it. And at the poles, incredible Christianity and discredited Christianity, the poles you want to avoid. What's Paul saying? 
in chapter 1. He's saying, hey, Thessalonians, you who are Christians in this ancient Greek city, I, I want you to know that, that I experience your faith and practice like, like, it's like a, it's like a perfect golf swing. Now, I don't think Paul played golf, but, you know, for sake of illustration. Uh, you're hitting it straight down the fairway. Your faith and practice, it's like a recipe that comes out just, just right, and, and everybody wants seconds of you and what you've got. I want to bottle you up and distribute you around the ancient world. Uh, your faith and practice, it's, it's like a song that you just love. You know how you just, you, there are certain songs that you'll hear and you just, man, you just wear it out. You just play it over and over and over again because you love how it soars. You love how it rides along. Faith, hope, and love. These three realities in verse 3. Paul's going to return to them throughout the letters I've been saying. Here's the center of our credibility continuum. Verse 4. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. How do you know? You've got the swing. You're hitting the ball in the middle of the fairway. You've got the flavor. You've, you've got the melody. You're centered Christians. That's what he's telling them in chapter 1. And this is all of grace. What they had, what we have. They didn't generate any of this on their own. Neither do we. But they responded to God as God requires. With faith, with hope, with love that was credible for what it did and what it did not do. So what's credible Christianity? That's what we're going to spend the next three months on, this month and the next two. This morning, just to start, I want to contrast the center to the poles. So we're just going to sort of stay conceptual and we'll get more into details as we go in subsequent weeks. But Credible faith, for instance. We could talk about credible hope. We could talk about credible love. But let's just talk credible faith. You get faith there in verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith. What is credible faith? Well, it's not incredible faith. We're going to contrast it with its extreme. Nor is it discredited faith out on the other end. Same with hope and love. Credible faith need not be incredible faith. Because the further out toward that end of the pole you go, you may inspire a lot of people to be thought of as an incredible Christian. And you may think that that's what you need to be. You need to be this incredible believer. But the further out to that pole you go, the more prone to pride you are. And if incredibleness becomes our goal, is there any room among us for the broken and those who doubt and struggle? You know, in our home, we like to recall that Johnny Cash called himself a C-minus Christian. <laughs> and one of my family members told me the other day, you know, I think I'm at least C+. <laughs> I can relate. But you know, that's an important thing to establish because you do realize, don't you? You do realize the gospel is only really relevant to people who've experienced pain. It's only relevant to people who've experienced disruption, to people who've been downwind of themselves enough to know they can really make a mess of things if given the space, time, and room, if they haven't already made a mess of things. We call that brokenness. We call that C plus, C minus ness. 
And the blessing of it is it keeps you from becoming a self-righteous, incredible Christian. Now, I know some exemplary Christians. Some are even in this room, as do you. That's people I think of as incredible people, examples to be held up to us all. Paul uses that term in verse 7. He says of them in verse 7, you're examples. He says in verse 8, all this good stuff rings out from you, sounds forth. I know some people like that, and you do too. They've influenced me deeply. They continue to. I know some model believers that I hold up to others. I hold these folks up. I I wish I could bottle them and distribute. I hold them up for encouragement. I've held them up for rebuke of some people. But those I think of as great examples are so because they know whatever is commendable about their faith, their hope, their love and expression, it's because of grace. It's not because of pride. It's not because they've gained all this and yes I know that I am an incredible Christian I am here to bless you with my presence and my gifts that's from pride these I'm thinking of are motivated by grace to seek greater competency in faith hope and love so that Jesus is seen in them whether other people recognize him or not we do and that matters Paul doesn't tell these folks they had an incredible witness incredible faith he tells them they had a resilient faith a resilient hope a resilient love they had a faith hope and love that others could get to others could access and in a tough place like Thessalonica he says in verse 6 you received the word in much affliction again go back and read Acts 17 if you want to see how violent and difficult it was in Thessalonica uh they, they take a guy named Jason in Thessalonica and, and, and falsely arrest him and make him post bond. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's, it's an upside down place. It's unfair. And this is where a church is thriving. Not because they have it all together. We're going to see their problems. He doesn't tell them they have an incredible faith. Incredibleness isn't the goal. Faithfulness is the goal. Because see, even the broken can access faithfulness. In fact, a lot of the most faithful people I know are very broken people. They've gone through the worst kinds of things. And they've not come out smelling like a rose. They've come out smelling like a Christian. They've been tested and they've been proven. What is credible Christianity? It's not incredible faith. And neither does it discredit faith, hope, or love. Moving over to the other pole now. Some in Thessalonica... We'll see this later, later chapters. They were discrediting their hope. The hope part of faith, hope, and love. There were some difficulties in Thessalonica because what you had is a contingency in that church who, you know, he says there in verse 10 to wait for his son from heaven. You had a contingency in that church who said, we think that's going to immediately happen. It's an imminent doctrine, meaning it's an anytime reality. But these folks said, it's going to happen. We know it. We're sure of it. We feel it in our bones. So we're going to quit work. And this was not a a wealthy church. And the other people in the church had to take care of them. They were able-bodied. But they wanted to be ready for the return of Jesus. And they thought that meant checking out. So that was discredited hope. And Paul will confront it. But this morning, let's just take in consideration of this other poll, the discredited poll now. Let's take what's in verse 9. Key on that. Verse 9. 
For they themselves report, that is, they themselves, the, the other churches in the, in the region, they report the kind of reception we had among you. He'll get into more of that in chapter 2. And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, now idolatry will certainly discredit us. And as I said at the beginning, I, I said I'd come back to this, to idolatry. When I said don't think of idolatry as an ancient reality only, it's a modern one. We think idolatry is bad, and it is. But the reason idolatry is bad is because of what idolatry does to what is good. In our expressions of idolatry as moderns, it's good things we turn into idols, even the best things. But because the Bible is an ancient book written in ancient times, we're told there are idol temples and there's these idolatrous rituals that debased and diminished people or indulged people. We think idolatry bad, but we also think idolatry ancient. And it is bad because of what it did to the good, but it's not just ancient. It's very much a modern reality in that idolatry takes good things and turns them into ultimate things. That's the context of modern idolatry and idolification. Not a word, but I'm making it one. And again, though the Bible's written in an ancient context, the, the biblical concept of idolatry is very sophisticated in that the scripture writers understand that idolatry is not just a spiritual matter. They treat it holistically. It's about the intellect. It's about psychology. It's about sociality. It's about cultural even economically, as ancient societies, ancient powers were built on and built around idolatry. To turn to the living God from idols, as Paul says here in verse 9, these Christians in Thessalonica had done. And note the both and in our text. In verse 4, there's an emphasis on being chosen by God. In verse 9, there's an emphasis on being responsive. Both and. To note that they turned to God from idols means believing in the one true God made their life harder, not easier. They got noticeably out of step with the culture around them. Caesar worship, the emperor, was huge. The coins, the very coins they spent pronounced that he was a god, he was divine. So was his son Augustus. He was worshiped too. They would not do that, the early Christians. No politician got their ultimate support, and that cost them. But there was nothing more important to them than their faithfulness to Jesus, because in that was their credibility. That's what it was about. Their city, Thessalonica, we've established. Old place, now it's Thessaloniki. You've still got some ruins around that goes back to their time, but their ancient city as it existed, do you realize it was as politically driven and as economically driven and as personality driven as our own city? It just lacked modern technologies. But the human heart has not changed that much in 2,000 years. We're still the same on the inside. And what we are is, uh, John Calvin said, we're idol factories. The human heart is an idol factory. We're as drawn to idols as we've ever been, which is to say, what does it mean to say we're drawn to idols? It means we are drawn to centering our identity and our meaning and our purpose in people and things short of God. We're constantly pursuing what we believe will satisfy us if we can just catch it. 
We're constantly pursuing what we believe will elevate us if we can just reach it. We put our faith and our hope and our love in the idolatries of our hearts and they don't satisfy. What can we do about that? Well, we need 12 Sundays to entertain that question. But suffice to say for now, our hearts need retraining. We need a new way. Only to find the new way we need is an old way. It's the First Thessalonians way. That's the way we need to take. It always takes us back to Jesus for us and we for him. Look, if you've been living on the poles, maybe you think you've got to be incredible for God. You need to be that incredible godly mother. All the pressure you're putting on yourself. You, you, you want your family to look together and be together and, and you're putting such pressure on yourself to, to fit some image that somewhere somebody cast as this is what godly mom motherhood is. Or you uh, put all this pressure on yourself to be the incredible godly student. On and on we could go, come back to the center. You don't have to be incredible. That's not the call. The call is to faithfulness with who you are and what you have to Jesus. Can someone get to Jesus Christ through me? Can someone grow in Jesus through me? Or am I in their way? Does the idolatries of my heart characterize me more than love for Jesus? If, if somebody was to describe you and Jesus is not in that description, you realize it's a problem. Am I pushing people away from him? Would they be surprised to know I actually love Jesus? <laughs> oh, really? You're a Christian? Wow, I did not know that. It's a little bit of a problem, isn't it? I'm not trying to shame you. In fact, I'm trying to lift you. Because if, if this is your reality and you're going, yeah, that's me, you, you, don't have to, you don't have to wallow in that. But you're over on the discredited pole. You need to come back to the center. Seek to be credible. And for many of us, you know, that, that involves learning how to practice repentance. Learning that repentance is not penance. Penance is all about trying to prove to God how sorry I am and, and I'm going to do better, Lord, and I promise you that'll never happen. Enough. Repentance is turning from that sin I'm trying to find life in, that perspective, that identity, whatever, turning back to Jesus, collapsing on him even, and saying, I'm not going to let you go. If I am the C minus est of all C minus Christians, I'm still with you because I know you're with me. And that becomes foundational and fundamental to you. Come back to the center. You know how refreshing it is now to find people who dare to say, you know, I think I was wrong. Man, everybody is so endlessly trying to justify themselves. Self-justification is the water we drink and the air we breathe in this culture. Nobody admits to being wrong. How refreshing it is to find somebody who says, you know, I think I was mistaken about that. I don't think I have the right angle on that. I think I need to learn more about that. That's how you practice repentance. Turn from looking to anyone or anything less than God to ultimately satisfy you, ultimately complete you, ultimately secure you. 
regularly ask the Lord Jesus to reorder, to order and to reorder your loves around his love for you and the sinner. So that you're known not for your opinionating and your politicizing and your stubbornness or, or your successes and your boasts, your credits. Be known at the core as someone who's soft to God, moldable to Jesus, someone who's in awe of him, someone who seeks his working in us, his securing, his correction, his building us up in his way and his truth and his life. Would you stand with me? Let's uh, pray together and then we'll sing and we'll have benediction after we sing. Father, would you help us uh, to aim for credibility, that you would free us from the, the drivenness that leads to wanting to be incredible, wanting to be somebody, even somebody for Christ. There's still a, a somebody in all caps in that usually. Lord, we, uh, we're so quick to uh, celebritize those who do it well, and then we're in awe of them. And Lord, we thank you for your choice servants and those who are superlatively gifted and have used all of that in service to you, those we know and those we don't know, and there are far more that we don't know out of the public eye who serve you faithfully. And we pray you'd free us from the discredited side too, that we would think anything is more important than faithfulness to Jesus. Now, Lord, help us to see that it's not in compartmentalizing our lives that we discover how to live them. It's in submitting our life to you continually, day by day, not as a one-time act, but ongoing. Help us in that. Lord, we need you. We seek you. And we want you to be glorified in and through us. As we study this book, help us to see what's there to see. Thank you that all scripture is profitable and that no matter where we open up a Bible to, we see uh, Christ for us. We see your gifts and your goodness to us. And we know we're not deserving, but we thank you that you, you call us to yourself and you want us with you. Thank you, Lord, for this time. We pray it all in Christ's name.